Before the collapse of the Berlin Wall, evangelist Billy Graham visited the Chancellor of West Germany. The head of the then German government said, Reverend Graham, do you believe Jesus was resurrected from the dead? Dr. Graham said, yes, I do. The Chancellor said, do you believe Jesus is now in heaven? Evangelist Graham said, yes, I do. This man said, then do you believe Jesus will return and reign over the earth? And the great evangelist said, yes, yes, I absolutely do. This distinguished chancellor responded, so do I. And if he doesn't, then there's no hope for this world. I agree with that assessment about hopelessness, but it's not possible that Jesus doesn't reign and rule on this earth because he said that he would. And unlike us, God does what he said he would do. A friend of mine, Dr. Joe Taylor, uh, pastor of South Reno Baptist Church, in a recent sermon he mentioned some unusual man-made prophecies most people aren't aware of. In 1920, notice 1920, in a lecture to the Royal College of Surgeons of England, Dr. Richard Clement Lucas predicted that in a century from then, meaning in 2020, just months ago, he predicted that because of evolutionary processes, our four outer toes would become useless and our feet would then consist of just one big toe. Don't check now, but pretty sure that didn't happen. In 1951, science fiction writer, futurist, and inventor Arthur Clarke co-wrote the essence of the screenplay for the movie called 2001 Space Odyssey. Mr. Clark predicted that, quote, our boring houses of 1966 would become radically different in 2020, that structural advancements to buildings would be such that houses would not be fastened to the ground, that houses could easily be moved. In fact, he said, in the 21st century, meaning now, entire communities could be moved in just a matter of minutes. I guess if there were an earthquake on 9.3, on the Richter scale, that might happen. But that would be ugly. Also in 1951, the magazine Popular Mechanics predicted that by 2020, every household would have a helicopter in the garage. Uh, that would be cool, but no. In 1966, Time Magazine, in, essay, in an essay called The Futurists, predicted that by 2020, machines would be doing literally all the work needed to populate and sustain our American way of life. It said, quote, without lifting a finger, the average non-working household, notice, the average non working, non-employed household could expect to earn an average annual income of between three hundred and four hundred thousand dollars. That sounds like a promise of more freebies from a political candidate to me. It's interesting that none of these unusual prophecies and predictions have been fulfilled, but one hundred percent of God's prophecies have been found to become true. Through a dream to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 2, 
and then through another dream to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, God prophesied or predicted that four consecutive global empires would fall. The ancient Babylonian Empire, the ancient Media Persian Empire, the ancient Grecian Empire, and the ancient Roman Empire. And just as God prophesied, through the means of those dreams, all four empires fell. God then predicted that a fourth empire would reemerge in a more revived end-time form. And most prophetical experts believe that form probably exists now as the modern European Union. And through the dream to Daniel, God prophesied that one dominant person would rule over that revived Roman Empire and those European nations. We understand that person to be the Antichrist. In a chronological sense, Daniel, through the means of his dream, has moved ahead more than 26 centuries in time. This is all future tense stuff. And most all that Daniel describes here happens in heaven. Notice Daniel 7, verse 9. I watched until thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was sealed. We just sang about the Ancient of Days. Daniel 7 is the only time in Scripture where this Ancient of Days is mentioned. This Ancient of Days is mentioned in Daniel 7, verse 9, verse 13, and verse 22. The Ancient of Days is an apparent reference to God Himself and seems to be a reference to God existing from the beginning. Psalm 90, verse 2 reads, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Meaning God exists from the everlasting past to the everlasting future. Some theologians also suggest this concept of the Ancient of Days is a reference to God existing before, meaning prior to the existence of actual days. That would fit Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is eternal, so God existed first before there was time. And then God created time measured in days and nights. That happened on creation day number one. Now don't misunderstand this ancient of days. This isn't just ancient as in oldness. This is ancient as in eternal. This is the one being that has been around forever. This is God himself. And in particular, this is God the Father. The Father, God the Father, is this Ancient of Days, meaning He had no beginning. He is eternal. Verse 9 continues, I watched until thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of His head was like pure wool. Remember, God exists in spirit form. God is one being, that exist in three co-equal persons, Father, Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. God, essentially though, other than Jesus, who is also human, God exists in spirit form, meaning we cannot see God per se. 
But in this instance, in this dream, God transformed himself into a human-like manifestation so that Daniel could see him. Notice, his throne was a fiery flame and its wheels a burning fire. That is a frightening picture of God's throne room. And this is an artist's rendering of that scene uh, in heaven. And notice in the foreground at the bottom, notice the massive multitude. Um, that multitude is described in verse 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, meaning from before the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father. A thousand thousands ministered to him, 10,000 times 10,000. In a literal sense, 10,000 times 10,000 equals 100 million. But that is probably just a figurative number, uh, meaning an incalculable number, an unlimited number. This 10,000 times 10,000, uh, these are saints or angels or a combination of both saints and angels, we aren't sure. And still this multitude, notice, stood before him, meaning stood before God the Father, the Ancient of Days. The court was seated and the books were open. Move down to verse 13. I was watching, Daniel said, in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. This is Jesus. The Son of Man is Jesus, coming with clouds of heaven. He, the Son of Man, Jesus, came to the Ancient of Days, came to God the Father, and they brought him near before him. Jesus is called four different sons throughout Scripture. He is the Son of David, meaning he is a direct descendant from David, and that was essential that he... Uh, was born in that line from David. Second, he is the son of Mary, meaning he is an immediate descendant from Mary. He was her firstborn child. Third, he is the son of God. The son of God. The son of, in the original language, means of the order of. So he is of the order of God. He is a part of the Godhead. He is God. And fourth, he is the son of man. The son of man. The common understanding is that the Son of God implies He is God. And the Son of Man implies He is a man. And that's true. We agree. Because Jesus is both God and man. He was one singular person, but He had two simultaneous natures. He was both divine and He was human. Eighty-one times in the Gospels, 81 times, Jesus called himself the Son of Man. That was his favorite designation he used for himself. It meant an exalted man. Son of Man meant man, meant he was human, but it meant more than that. It meant he was an exalted man. Remember Philippians 2, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him, meaning his son Jesus, Notice Matthew 26. Jesus had been arrested in the garden. It is late on Thursday night. Um, he had been brought to the Jewish high priest, Caiaphas, to be tried in the middle of the night. Verse 63. 
And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ. Now the word Christ is the same as the word Messiah. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the one the Jewish people have been searching for. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Verse 64, Jesus said to him, It is as you said. It is as you said. Jesus just confirmed that he was the promised Messiah. And he was God's Son, meaning he was equal to God himself. It is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man, meaning himself, sitting at the right hand of the power. The power, meaning God, his throne in heaven, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you understand that Jesus, in that response to Caiaphas, the high priest, was referencing Daniel 7 and verse 13? the verse we just read, no normal human would ever sit at the right hand of God. And no normal human descends from heaven with clouds. Jesus, though, does both. He is the Son of Man, meaning He is the exalted man. He is the ultimate man. And He is exalted because He is God. He literally confessed His deity to this high priest, Caiaphas. So the Son of Man has a double meaning. It means Jesus was an authentic human being. And that's the reason He is so relatable to us. And second, it means He is an exalted human being because He is also God. Daniel 7 and verse 14. Then to Him, the Son of Man, Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Notice, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. As we have seen throughout Daniel, human kingdoms rise and human kingdoms fall until the messianic Jesus sets up a kingdom that forever replaces them and where mankind can co-rule in righteousness. Move down to verse 18. But the saints of the Most High, the Most High meaning God Himself. Stop there. The word saint means a separated one or one who has been set apart. At salvation, through receiving Jesus, God then separates someone and sets them apart for himself. That means that from salvation on, we are God's exclusive possession. We are his. He has set us apart for himself. So in that sense, we are considered saints. And we are saints of the Most High God. And notice, such as such, as saints, notice, we shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom. How long? Forever, even forever and ever. Verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. That's us. We are those saints. 
and the time came for the saints, that's us, to possess the kingdom. Go to verse 26. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion, meaning the rule of the Antichrist on earth, to consume it and destroy it forever. Verse 27. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people. Who are the people here? We are. Notice. Shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High God. That's us. And His kingdom, meaning God's kingdom, as mediated through His Son, Jesus the Messiah, is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Verse 28. This is the end of the account. Daniel has just recited throughout this chapter his dream. This is the end of the account from his dream. As for me, Daniel said, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. This dream was upsetting to Daniel, so he didn't even share this dream. He didn't tell anyone he had this dream at the time that it happened. It was sometime after that he revealed this dream. The big idea of this second section is... The big idea from this section, from Daniel 7, is a promise that God's saints will reign with God himself and his son, the Messianic Jesus, throughout the eternal age. Don't miss this. This is a promise from God that God's saints, those of us that have Jesus, those of us that are his, will reign with God himself and his son, the Messianic Jesus, throughout the eternal age. God the Father, who is here called the Ancient of Days, and His Son, uh, the promised Messiah, Jesus, will ultimately rule this earth. And those that are saints, those of us that have received Jesus, will rule with them. That's the reason author Mark Hitchcock said that now is the training time for the reigning time because we will reign on this earth. Now, in the previous message, we started to address the end times chronological timeline. And we, we addressed half of it. Notice, one, this is a, a timeline. One, the church is raptured, meaning rescued from off the earth. Second, is a tribulation period. The tribulation is an 84-month long period of hell on earth. It is divided into two halves of 42 months each, and the second half is much worse than the first half. Three is the battle of Gog and Magog. This is where Russia and Russia's allies attempt to invade Israel and Jerusalem, and God himself annihilates those armies. Fourth is the abomination of desolation. This is a horrific thing, and we're going to discuss this in more specifics in Daniel 9. Five is the battle of Armageddon. This isn't the final battle, but Armageddon is the most devastating human battle humans have ever fought. Estimates are that there could be as much as 400 to 500 million human casualties at that battle. Six is the judgment of the nations. This is where God evaluates the survivors from the tribulation period. Now, this morning, 
let's finish this timeline. Number seven is the binding of Satan. The binding of Satan. Revelation 20, notice verse 1. Then I saw, I might add, John, one of the twelve apostles, is the man God used to record uh, the contents of Revelation. He is the human author. And then I, John, saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Verse 2, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And notice, and bound him for a thousand years. Verse 3, and he cast him, meaning Satan, into the bottomless pit and shut him up. Now, (laughs) you can take that multiple ways. Shut up, Satan. Shut him up. Uh, But it meant he's in the pit and locked up. And set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Some people are more visual learners, and I'm one of them. So there's a diagram on the note sheet. Notice the diagram of these different uh, stages throughout this chronological timeline are mentioned there, and there are blanks to be filled in as we go through these. Uh, Bottomless pit is translated from just one ancient Greek word, and that word is abyss. Most of us have heard that word, abyss. Abyss means bottomless, unbounded, or immeasurable depth. We aren't sure about the exact shape of this bottomless pit. For some reason, I imagine it being a rotating donut shape so that its inhabitants are constantly falling and never reaching a bottom. That would be horrifying. The bottomless pit is described in more specific language in Revelation 9. There is a demon in charge of that cosmic compartment. His name in the Greek language is Apollia. Apollia. Apollyon. And Apollyon means the destroyer. The destroyer. At the beginning of the millennium, a powerful, faithful angel puts Satan into a serious headlock, wraps him up in chains, and then drops him into the bottomless pit where he is incarcerated there for ten consecutive centuries. He then, at the end of that time, is released from the bottomless pit, as we are going to see. Now, during the time Satan is imprisoned in this bottomless pit, notice number eight, the millennial kingdom is established. The millennial kingdom is established. Please notice the diagram. Jesus' return to the earth occurs in two separate phases. Two phases, and the tribulation period separates those phases. First, there's the rapture phase, where church-age Christians, that's us, are caught up to meet Jesus in the atmosphere above the earth, and then together go on into heaven. After that, there's a series of judgments on earth called the tribulation. Then at the end of that tribulation period, Jesus returns to the earth. He actually returns to the earth, sets down on earth at his revelation. 
It's called the revelation because the rapture is primarily secret. No one sees the rapture happen. Millions vanish in a microsecond. No one sees it happen. People just see that there are all these people missing after. The second aspect or phase of his return is called the revelation because he reveals himself in a dramatic public sense as he descends to the earth. Jesus and all Old Testament saints uh, who have been deceased and New Testament Christians who have been deceased and in heaven um, and those that are raptured alive that includes us somewhere in there return to the earth. Jesus defeats Antichrist and his forces at this battle called Armageddon, and then Jesus marches into Jerusalem. He sits down on David's throne and establishes his messianic rule for a 1,000-year period. It's called the millennium because the word millennium means 1,000. Now, don't forget, it's also during this millennial period that Satan is imprisoned in the bottomless pit. Because if he wasn't, he would just cause problems on earth, as he does now, and the millennium couldn't be the millennium. The millennium will be the ideal, best-case situation possible on this earth, this side of heaven. It will be an environment of incredible peace and prosperity. Number nine is the final battle. This is Satan's final rebellion. Number nine. Notice the diagram again. This final battle comes at the end of the millennium. Just before the millennial period ends, we just read, Satan will be released from the bottomless pit for a short time. Some think through this. Some non-Christians that are left behind after the rapture occurs then decide to become Christians during the tribulation period. And those people that do become Christians at that time and manage to survive the tribulation, and that will be a difficult thing to do. Some, though, are going to survive, and then those survivors enter the millennium. And once in the millennium, those people start to procreate, meaning have babies. So much so that there could be millions of babies born during the millennial period. Ten centuries, people, in an almost perfect environment is enough time to create a serious population boom. And unless those millennial Christians that repopulate themselves are more successful at raising spiritual children than now, chances are most of those generations don't become Christians. At this moment, 73% of children from Christian households raised in the church abandon the Christian faith after high school. Three out of four. So there could easily be a sizable, unsaved population at the end of those thousand years. So Satan is released from the bottomless pit. He then attracts to himself all those that are unsaved, brings them together, and attempts to forcibly overtake Jerusalem and Jesus, we should give Satan some credit as, as he is persistent. It would seem to me that hanging out 
in the bottomless pit an entire millennium would cause him to reevaluate things. But it doesn't. He orchestrates one final attempt at a coup. It's an unsuccessful rebellion as fire descends from heaven and eliminates that threat. Satan is then, after that unsuccessful rebellion, is then cast into the final hell called the lake of fire. And people, that is the absolute and final end of Satan and his influence. Praise God. Number 10 is the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment. Once more, notice the prophetic diagram. All those that are unsaved from all time are scheduled to stand before Jesus at this judgment. The initial judgment is to evaluate each one's works, meaning what he did on this earth. Since God's entrance requirement into heaven is absolute perfection, and since no one's works are even close to perfect, that's not going to work. So these unsaved people are then evaluated to see if their name is found in the book of life. The book of life is the ultimate record of all the names of all Christians from all time. No non-Christian's name is in that book. And at this judgment, no one is found in the book of life, meaning that none of those that stand before Jesus are saved. So all of them, since their name isn't in that book, are also cast into the lake of fire where Satan and Antichrist and the false prophet and all demons are also imprisoned. Number 11 is the new creation. See the diagram or chart on the note sheet. The new creation. Now please think through this. Both this earth, this present earth, and present heaven have been contaminated through sin. We mentioned earlier the millennium is going to be almost ideal. Sin uh, is scheduled to be suppressed during that time, but sin will also exist during the millennial period. As we said, there are unsaved there. Sin does exist there. It is suppressed since Jesus is ruling. Sin has also affected heaven to some extent. Satan is still permitted periodic access into heaven. Satan cannot inhabit heaven. He once did, not now. Satan cannot have an actual residence and address in heaven, but Satan does have certain visitation privileges into heaven. He goes there to accuse us of committing sin. He goes there to tattle on us to God. Unsuccessful he is, but he does that. He doesn't learn. Since Satan originated sin, Satan's periodic presence in heaven brings an element of sin into heaven. So, in the interest of permanent purification from sin, God plans to create a new earth and a new heaven. Notice Luke 21, verse 33. Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means 
pass away. Second Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both this earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Understand this present earth as it is now will not remain forever as it is. Revelation 21, verse 1, John said, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, meaning the earth now, passed away. We need to be careful we don't misunderstand these verses. These verses don't, don't implicate that there is going to be an absolute, total, and final destruction of this earth and heaven. Instead, Scripture teaches a temporary destruction that is reversed through a restoration. A temporary destruction that is reversed through a restoration. Author and theologian John Piper argues that God did not create matter to throw it away. He said this, quote, When these passages we just read read that the present earth and heavens will pass away, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that the present earth and heavens go out of existence, but means that there will be such a change in them that their present condition passes away. It could be said and is similar to the caterpillar passes away and the butterfly emerges. God has built restoration properties into his creation. And even though this is a fallen earth, those properties are still there. One example of that restoration we can see is Mount St. Helens. Some of us remember Mount St. Helens in Washington State erupted on May 18, 1980. This is the actual eruption itself. I had a friend who was in Portland at the time. He said there were six inches of ash on the ground in Portland, which is some 53 miles from the site of the eruption. It was the deadliest and most economically destructive volcanic eruption in U.S. history. 57 people died in that devastation, 200 homes, 47 bridges, 15 miles of railroads, and 185 miles of highway were completely destroyed. It created 540 million tons of ash. It created the largest landslide in history. 4.7 billion, billion feet, board feet of timber were lost. This is some of that. that look at the trees. Devastation. A massive debris avalanche triggered from a magnitude 5.1 earthquake caused a lateral eruption that reduced the elevation of the mountain's summit more than 1,300 feet. It also left behind a one-mile-wide horseshoe-shaped crater. Notice, on the left is Mount St. Helens before the eruption. On the right, after the eruption, notice that horseshoe-shaped crater at the top. That was a dramatic loss of height on the mountain, more than 1,300 feet, blown off. Former President Carter visited the site, and he commented, someone said this area resembled a moonscape. He said, but the moon looks more like a golf course compared to what's up there. 
It was bad. But God has built restorative properties into his creation. And just six years after that eruption, most lakes and rivers in that area were back to their normal pre-eruption state. And both vegetation and animals have returned to the same numbers as before. And Mount St. Helens is once more a popular year-round climbing destination. People can climb to the top. Now, I'm not recommending that since scientists says it will happen again, and this time it'll be worse, so there's no way I'm doing that, but it happens. <laughs> Mount St. Helens represents a gradual and still continuing restoration. But God's restoration of this earth and heavens will be an instantaneous recreation, and it will be perfect. Early church father Jerome often said that heaven and earth would not be annihilated, but would be transformed into something better. The upgrade from the old earth to the new earth will be incredible. I can't wait to see it. The last stage in the prophetic timeline, number 12, is the eternal age or eternal state. One more time. Notice the diagram. Sin. Sin ends at the creation of a new earth and heaven. Satan and his associations and all that are unsaved are incarcerated in the final hell, so sin will no longer exist. God is then, in the absence of sin, God is then free to rule uncontested. So the eternal age means the beginning of God's eternal, forever, uncontested reign and rule where he will delegate his rule on earth to us as co-rulers. Remember, God is the sovereign ruler of this universe, but for some reason unknown to us, God has not chosen to rule the universe alone. He has chosen to have us assist him. He has assigned us to rule the new earth. As God's saints, we will fulfill on the new earth the role God first assigned to the first man and woman on the original earth in the garden. Notice Revelation 22, verse 5. There shall be no night there, our ultimate residence, in the new Jerusalem that is located now in the third heaven, that's a comment on that environment. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. Notice. And they, they would be us. They shall reign. How long? Forever and ever. Revelation 19.16 reads that Jesus is the king of all kings. His eternal kingdom then will be the kingdom of all kingdoms. And so it will exist forever. We just mentioned that the epicenter of heaven is called the New Jerusalem. And it seems that after the earth has been recreated, that this New Jerusalem will descend from heaven and situate itself on the new earth. Notice Revelation 21, verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Meaning, New Jerusalem, coming down from the third heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. 
It's interesting that this second verse reads that the new Jerusalem descends from heaven, but it doesn't comment, doesn't tell us where it descends to. Some believe it becomes a form of satellite and orbits the earth. Most reject that. Most theologians and prophetical experts agree that the new Jerusalem descends from heaven after the recreation, descends from heaven and then lands on the new earth and remains there on the new earth. Again, the new Jerusalem, now in the third heaven, descends from heaven after the recreation of the new earth, lands on the new earth and remains there. So that throughout the eternal age, it could be said that heaven will be on earth. Meaning that our permanent residence throughout the eternal age will be in the new Jerusalem located on the new earth. It's interesting that the first four kingdoms from Daniel's dream, remember, were located on earth. And Antichrist's kingdom is located on the earth. So it is reasonable to believe, reasonable to believe, the final kingdom, meaning God's eternal kingdom, is also located on the earth. Also something interesting to consider is, under God's covenant with ancient Israel, the Jewish people never, never anticipated the Messiah to rule in heaven, but to rule on this earth. I believe throughout the eternal age we will have continued access to the third heaven, if we want to go up there and check out things, fine. But our residence, our house, which will be unbelievable, our address, our permanent address, will be in the New Jerusalem located on the New Earth. The New Jerusalem is described uh, from Revelation 21, verse 1, through Revelation 22, verse 5. It is phenomenal. The common New Testament Greek word, translated as eternal, is Ionios. Ionios. That word has three basic meanings. One, it means without a beginning. Two, it means without an ending. Three, it means without a beginning or an ending. In summation, Ionios means perpetual, forever and evermore. That's the essence of the word eternal. The word, though, implies more than just longevity. The word implies quality and quantity. Quality and quantity. Eternal implies the best possible situation and the longest possible situation. And the eternal state will be both of those. Stephen King is a famous novelist. Most of us recognize his name. He is said to have revived the genre of horror fiction. So much so, he is called the king, sort of a play on his words, king of horror. He has authored 62 novels and five nonfiction books. Get this, his books have sold more than 350 million copies. Boy, wouldn't you like to have those royalties? Once Rolling Stone magazine interviewed Mr. King. The interviewer asked an appropriate question since Stephen has spent his entire career commenting on death. The question was, do you hope to go to heaven? Do you hope, Mr. King, to go to heaven? His response was, quote, I don't want to go to the heaven I learned about when I was a kid. To me, it seems boring. 
The idea that we're going to lounge around on a cloud and listen to guys play harps. I don't want to listen to harps. I want to listen to Jerry Lee Lewis. For the uninformed Jerry Lee Lewis, cousin to Mickey Gilley and disgraced evangelist Jimmy Swaggart is now 85, still alive, one of the pioneers of rock and roll music, and I agree, Jerry Lee Lewis is better than a bunch of harps, I agree. I agree with Stephen King in the sense I have no interest in that heaven he just described either. But that's not the biblical heaven. That heaven Mr. King described doesn't exist. In heaven we are promised an incredible residence inside an indescribable new Jerusalem located on a new and recreated earth. It lasts forever and people it is anything but boring. I hope you're going there. Let's bow our heads. The gentlemen that serve communion are coming as we bow our heads. The most important takeaway from this message is that uh, we want to reign with Christ on the new earth. We want our residents to be a part of the new Jerusalem. And we want to do that forever. But we can't do it if we miss Jesus. We must have Jesus. He is the only possible means of being able to do all of that. And my prayer this morning is if there's anyone here who doesn't have Jesus, that after this service, just say to me, Pastor, can we talk sometime soon so that we can sit down together and I can share with you how you can have Jesus. Nothing, nothing matters more than Jesus. Father, please, I pray you'll bless our time of communion as we sit here together and we, we look back, remember your son's death for us on the cross. I pray that you'll make this portion of our service very special. And I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.